please open your Bibles to our passage this morning in Ephesians chapter 5, 15 through 33. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might actually might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Ever experience a situation where someone or something was not what was originally described to you? I've had this a number of times as, as a pastor. Um, perhaps somebody will come to me um, about their spouse or uh, about a parent and, and I had to learn very early on that you must get two sides to the story. I would hear one side, and it's like, I'm going to go string that guy up, only to hear, you know, the rest of it and realize it wasn't what I originally thought. Now, this can happen in institutions and ideas as well. For example, I have some Singaporean friends, and they are hilarious in talking about their expectations of marriage. You, you see, they… They were told, they were braced for the absolute worst, right? They, they said in premarital counseling, this poor woman, like she was told how terrible it was going to be and what she was going to have to endure, and let's just say he was set up to brace himself for a nightmare. And, and they love to tell that story because they're like, it wasn't like that at all. It's fantastic. They have a wonderful marriage, and again, wasn't what was originally thought. I remember the first time I visited a particular church. I had heard some pretty negative things about it, but after going there and visiting for a while, I realized, what? It's just not right. What I heard simply wasn't true. And I start here this morning because the topic that we're going to be covering over the next several weeks, what I'm calling Paul's teaching on the Spirit-filled home, is one that in our day has a lot of misunderstandings quite frankly, a lot of half-baked ideas which have led to quite a number of unnecessary negative views. 
Oh, to be sure, some of the negative views are to be expected. The Bible's teaching on the Christian home is most certainly countercultural. In fact, I think we have to even say that the Bible's teaching on the Christian home is countercultural for cultural Christianity. But I do believe that when rightly understood, when lived out, it's beautiful and wonderful. And so my plea for all of us right here at the top of this study is let's make sure God's Word has the final say on where we land with our views on these things. And to do that, I think we're going to need a running start and make sure we are interpreting this text that we're looking at in light of the rest of this letter. Again, I'm titling this The Spirit-Filled Home because this section flows directly from where we ended last week. Last week we were exhorted, don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. The result that He gave us of being filled with the Spirit is singing to one another, singing to God, giving thanks to God in all things and submitting one to the other, namely, wives to husbands, kids to parents, slaves to masters. And I'm going to make that connection more clear as we go, but before I do that, we got to jump back to the beginning of chapter 4, where Paul said, therefore, I urge you to walk, to live in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And we've said countless times that this particular therefore is the glue that ties the first half and the second half of the book of Ephesians together. In Ephesians 1 through 3, Paul told us all about the amazing calling to which Christians have been called, how we've been chosen from before the foundation of the world, predestined to adoption as sons, sealed by the Holy Spirit, that we would make it to the end to receive our glorious inheritance, how we who were dead spiritually have been made alive with Christ, how we were saved by grace through faith, and in so doing, how we're actually God's new creation, created in Christ Jesus for good works. And thus in chapter 4, Paul says, in light of all of that, live accordingly. Live in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And there he specified that a vital part of living in a manner worthy of the calling is that we work hard to maintain the unity that we have been brought into. And it's important that we understand how tight all of chapters 4 through 6 are. What I mean by that is Paul's exhortations here that we're going to be looking at in chapters 5 through 6, the Spirit-filled home, that they're intimately connected with the exhortation to work towards maintaining unity, right? Think about it. If you want to be of help to your local church, if you want to serve the church, be a blessing to the church, One of the things that would be wonderful is to work hard to maintain a unified marriage. That's not to say that the church can't and doesn't help us in our marriages when we're struggling. It absolutely can, and it does. But the point is, this is important to Paul because the family, the household, is the building block of the church. And so, if you have divisiveness in a particular family in the church, you have, ipso facto, divisiveness in the church. So, so all of this is related. And in fact, as we go through this section, I think we'll see that it has as much to do with the church as it does with the family. 
I mean, if you're one who writes in your Bible, just go through and circle every time the word church is used through this church. Circle body. Circle her when it's referring to the church. Circle she when it's referring to the church. It's all over. And so this is tied to that exhortation to be unified. What's more, when we keep going, you come to 417, and, and Paul exhorts us, keeping unity in mind, that we as a new creation in Christ are no longer to think and live like we used to, like unbelievers who, he says, live, think in the futility of their, their minds. He says they're darkened in their understanding, ignorant, heart of heart. And one key point there that is intimately related to where he's going today is this. If unbelievers are futile in mind, if they are in fact darkened in their understanding as Holy Scripture says, if they are ignorant, if they are hard-hearted, then why in the world would we ever seek to understand how family life should be lived by them? But often we do. Consider this. If you wonder whether your views of authority, which is the key point that we're going to be covering today, if you wonder whether your views of authority are shaped by our current cultural norms or the Bible, ask yourself this. What do I think of when I hear the word authority? What words come to mind? What do I think of when I hear the word authority? What what do I think of when I hear submitting to authority? Again, what words pop into your mind? Do you think maybe authoritarian, domination, heavy-handed, abusive, oppressive, overreach? Or do you think beneficial, protection, freedom, blessing, joy, life-giving? See, I would submit to you that if your thinking is more in that first list, You're not getting that from the Bible. I mean, think about God as authority. Is that how you think about that? Jesus as authority. See, we need to come into this remembering Paul's already said, don't think and live like unbelievers in the futility of their mind. Don't get your ideas. Don't get your marching orders from them. And this is important because like sexuality that he covered earlier, like other things that he covered. The Christian worldview of the family is different than that of culture, and we must settle firmly on what the will of God is, what God's Word says. That line of exhortation of how we think and live then carried us right into the text we looked at last week. Remember there, we were exhorted to walk, again to live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time. We were exhorted not to be foolish. And again, said this is all tied to 417, thinking like unbelievers, because in the Bible, remember, it's believers whose lives are characterized by wisdom and unbelievers whose lives are characterized by foolishness. And thus Paul said, don't think and live like fools, but instead know what the will of God is. See, the antidote to being a fool is coming to Christ and thus thinking and living in light of the will of God, in light of what we said last week is the revealed will of God, thinking and living in light of Holy Scripture. And that was intimately connected to the exhortation, don't be drunk with wine, that's foolishness, but be 
filled with the Spirit. Don't be filled with alcohol to the point that it controls you, but instead, be filled with the Spirit. And the overarching idea there was control. We want to be filled with the Spirit so that He controls us. I I heard a a picture just the other day that I would have used last week and I had heard it earlier. The picture that we want to think of when we think of being filled with the Spirit is not so much a a glass being filled with water, but a a sail on a sailboat being filled with wind, right? Think think about what happens with that. That sail is filled with wind and that boat is then carried along by the wind. And so too for the Christian, we want to be filled with with the Spirit, carried along by the Spirit, controlled by the Spirit. And last week we looked at the parallel passage in Colossians 3 that's virtually identical to Ephesians 5, other than the fact that instead of the category heading being be filled with the Spirit in Colossians 3, the same argument is led off by let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. And we briefly compared that with Jesus' teaching on the Spirit in John chapter 14, 15, and 16 where we were reminded that the Holy Spirit uniquely works through Holy Scripture. And thus, if we want to be wise, if we want to be filled with the Spirit, controlled by the Spirit, we must be people of the Word. And the results Paul gave us that can be seen in the lives of those who are filled with the Spirit, controlled by the Spirit, are we sing to one another. We sing and we make melody to God. We are thankful to God, and in reverence to Christ, we submit to the various authorities He has placed over us, which is where we pick it up in our text today. And we're going to be starting with wives because, well, that's what shows up first in the text, but not to worry. We'll focus on husbands next week. And let me just say, as you're turning to Ephesians 5 quickly, if you're here and you're single, you're not yet married please know there's a lot in here for you. This idea of submission is all over the Bible. As Christians, we are submissive people. So, turn with me if you're not there to Ephesians 5. I want to begin by rereading verses 22 through 24. Here we read, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. I said earlier that this is a text that is a challenge even to cultural Christianity. And, and, and by that, you can read in that. Uh, you could go into other churches, and you're going to hear differing views, right? So, you could call this a debated passage. Interestingly, though, it is a very simple passage. Most debated passages are debated because they're difficult to understand. Some weeks in my sermon prep, I spend most of the time wrestling with the text itself, trying to understand the flow, trying to understand the syntax, and all that's going on there. No such struggles here, none. This text is very simple, very straightforward. See, it's it's the content. It is the idea of biblical authority that gives us troubles. And in fact, 
This is a recent struggle, a recent struggle of Western Christianity. And the reason it's a recent struggle of Western Christianity is because this text pushes against what are now pretty established cultural norms. Here Paul plainly exhorts wives to submit to their own husband's authority. And that's because there's so much feminist teaching out there on this text, we really do need to drill down and answer the question, what is the Bible teaching us here? And I think a good place to start is, what does the Bible mean by this word, submit? In short, we can say that this word, the Greek word is hupotasso, translated usually as submit, sometimes be subject to, this word consistently refers to a willing placing of oneself under the authority of another. It's a giving of a proper respect that is due to an office or a person in authority. Implicit in this word submission is obedience, as we'll see when we get down to the section on children and slaves. Here, here then, the point is Christian wives are to willingly place themselves under their husband's authority or leadership in marriage. And P.T. O'Brien says it this way in his commentary, quote, the word submit has to do with the subordination of someone in an ordered array to another who is above the first, that is, in authority over that person. At the heart of submission is the notion of order. God has established certain leadership and authority roles within the family, and submission is a humble recognition of that divine ordering." End quote. Now, my guess is there's at least a few here who might already be struggling with this. I shared back when we did a short study on complementarianism, which is how these roles of men and women complement one another. I shared then that this was something that I struggled greatly with after first coming to Christ and reading my Bible. I had to come to terms with, wait a second, I'm pretty sure the Bible is not wrong here. I'm pretty sure there must be something in my own worldview, and I had to wrestle with bringing my worldview in line with the Bible's worldview. And I think constantly trying to make sure our worldview comes from a biblical worldview is something that we all must keep on the front burner because we are bombarded with a worldly worldview every time we turn around. That said, I think it's important that we step back and understand how this word is consistently used in the New Testament, for it's a common word that regularly speaks of God-ordained authority structures. So, for example, in Hebrews 12.9 and James 4.7, we see Christians submitting to God. In 1 Peter 2.13, we see that Christians in general are to submit to our governing authorities. In, in addition, the New Testament portrays Jesus as submitting to His earthly parents in Luke 2. We're told that Jesus submits to God the Father, 1 Corinthians 15. We're told unseen powers submit to Christ, 1 Peter 3.22. In fact, the whole universe will ultimately submit to Christ, 1 Corinthians 15 and Ephesians 1. What's more, we see that the church submits to Christ, Ephesians 5. Church members submit to church leaders, 1 Corinthians 16 and 1 Peter 5. Slaves submit to masters, and here, wives to husbands. And this is very important. In each and every instance, we never, not one single time, 
find an example where that relationship is reversed. Never. In other words, we don't find anywhere God submitting to believers. You do not find anywhere in the Bible masters submitting to slaves. You do not find the government submitting to the individual Christian, and so on and so forth, which makes it clear that the verb submit, hupotasso in the Greek, makes it clear that this, this word, and by the way, this is true in the New Testament, it's true in the LXX, which is the Greek Old Testament, and it's true in every known first century meaning of this word in Greek, it always has the meaning of someone submitting to an authority of some kind, some sort of hierarchical structure, as it were. In other words, and I'm going after something very specific here, contrary to what has become a common teaching in some circles of Christianity, this word is never used in the New Testament to refer to mutual submission. Now, you might say, hold on, wait a, wait a second. What about Ephesians 5.21? It was just read for us. Last week we said it's the bridge verse that bridges where we ended last week with where we're going today. Doesn't it say submitting to one another? I mean, isn't that an evidence that that's what's going on here? Submitting to one another out of reverence or better translation, out of the fear of Christ. This is important. Let's dig in. I want to give you three reasons why verse 21 cannot mean mutual submission. The first is the lexical argument I just mentioned If verse 21 is speaking of mutual submission, you have to know, you've got to be comfortable standing on this, that that would be the only place in the entire New Testament, the only place in the Greek Old Testament, and the only place in any of the known Greek literature of this time period where that word would be taken as mutual submission. But that doesn't work, right? Because the word always refers to someone or some group of people submitting to some kind of authority. The second reason it's not mutual submission is syntactical. Here we need to consider the role of the words one another here in this verse. Here we need to understand one another is not always fully reciprocal. And no context has to demonstrate whether we're dealing with full reciprocity or not. And there are certainly examples of this pronoun throughout the New Testament where it's not fully reciprocal. P.T. O'Brien commenting on this says, for example, Revelation 6.4, so that men should slay one another, cannot mean that each killed the other at precisely the same time as he or she was being killed. Likewise, Galatians 6.2, bear one another's burdens, does not signify that everyone should exchange burdens at precisely the same time with everyone else, but that some who are more able should be able to help the burdens of others who are less able end quote. So, so context is crucial, and context leads to the third reason this can't be talking about mutual submission, which is the logical flow of the passage itself. Here he says, submit to one another. Perhaps a better translation, submit one to another. And then if you follow the writer's flow of thought, he goes on to fill out exactly what he's talking about. Submit to one another, wives to husbands, children to parents, slaves to masters. 
Now, some of you might be reading a New American Standard. It's actually the most literal of the English translations. It's so literal that the translators will, will put things in italics and, and write various notes when they want to show you that they've added a word or something here to smooth the translation. And, and if you're reading a NASB, you would notice that the word submit, or I think in the NASB it's actually be subject to, it's in italics because it's not even in the original, which actually highlights what I'm saying all the more. Uh, reading it in the original, it comes off like this. Verse 21, submitting to one another. Verse 22, namely, wives to your own husbands as to the Lord. So again, context makes it clear Paul's not talking about everyone mutually submitting to one another. The context just won't allow that. If you take it that way, again, just know that you also then have to take it to be that parents are somehow submitting to their children and that slave owners are somehow submitting to their slaves, which, of course, from a biblical standpoint, both of those would be absolutely unthinkable. The reality is, lexically, syntactically, and contextually, it is impossible to take this word submission and make it something that is mutual. And I'd like to remind us here, I don't write the mail. I simply deliver it. Don't shoot the messenger. Instead, let us all wrestle with the text that's here before us. And the text says wives are to submit, to willingly place themselves under the leadership, the biblical authority of their own husbands. And this is a clear teaching throughout the New Testament. And, and, and let me also just say for any closet male chauvinists who might be among us, don't get too excited here because next week we're going to take a deep dive into what it means for the husband to love his wife as Christ loved the church. Okay? But before we move completely from this idea of mutual submission, one more thing. Let, let me comment on a passage like Philippians 2 that someone will point to and say, ha-ha, here, here it is, different wording, but this teaching must be mutual submission. So keep your finger in Ephesians 5, jump over to Philippians 2. It's just one turn of a page in my Bible. Philippians 2. Pick it up in verse 1. He says, so if there's any encouragement, these if clauses could be taken almost as sense. Since there's encouragement in Christ, since there's comfort from love, since there is participation with the Spirit, oh, this is similar to Ephesians 5, right? Filled with the Spirit, carried along by the Spirit. Participation with the Spirit, that word is koinonia, it's fellowship with the Spirit. Since that's going on, since there is affection and sympathy, he says, then complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Wow, that's a big command, isn't it? Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Have this mindset among yourself, which is yours in Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I mean, think about what's being taught there. Put yourself put your own needs below others? Doesn't this speak of mutual submission? As we're led by the Spirit, aren't we all supposed to count others more significant than ourselves? 
Don't we follow Jesus' lead here? Isn't that the point? He's putting Jesus forward as an example. Don't we follow his lead who made himself nothing for the good of others? The answer is, of course. Again, stay tuned next week. Here, though, we must say that while these are related ideas, and this teaching should indeed color Ephesians 5, specifically when when we look to the husband loving their wife as Christ loved the church, the fact remains Hupatoso, to submit, is a technical word that always speaks to God-ordained authority structure, whereas putting the needs of others above your own does not. Think about it. It's pretty simple. Jesus, who we know was and always will be an authority over the church, clearly put the needs of the church above his own in going to the cross. And any good leader, whether a husband or an elder, wants to put the needs of those above their own that they're in authority over. That said, such an understanding never negates a God-ordained authority structure that must be understood and must be lived in light of. Finally, last thing before we get back to the flow of the passage. We must, we must be crystal clear That one person willingly submitting to another, to an authority, does not make that person an authority intrinsically any better than the other. Both Paul and Peter both make it clear that men and women are equal in personhood. Both are equally made in the image of God. Both have equal access to salvation. And as Peter says at the end of his teaching on these roles, each share the same destiny as they're both equally heirs of eternal life. So the submission of wives to husbands in no way suggests inferiority. And this is so clear when we consider a text like 1 Corinthians 15 that teaches that Christ at that point is in submission to God the Father. And we know that doesn't mean he's any less God or any less important in his role in the Godhead. No, the Father and Son are equal in essence. The Son is no less important. He simply has a different role. And the same is true in our marriages. Men and women are equal in essence before God, and yet in God's divine sovereignty, he has ordered things in such a way that actually and quite beautifully we are to complement one another, fulfilling the different roles He's given us that will actually make the marriage stronger. More on that next week. For now, back to the flow of the text. Here, Scripture plainly teaches that wives are called to submit to their own husbands. And the person to whom the wife is called to submit must not be missed here, because there's some pretty bizarre teachings out there that women are called to submit to men across the board, and it's just not the case. I've I've actually heard of some college ministries where young men in the group expect the young ladies to follow their lead for no other reason than their gender is male. But they're not the husband. They're not this girl's father. They're not even the leader of that ministry. No, see, we need clarity where the Bible gives it. And here Paul's teaching that wives are to submit to their own husbands. And if you look back at the text, you see why in verse 23. And by the way, I'm not skipping the phrase, as to the Lord. We're going to pick that back up. Verses 22 and 24 hit on the same idea from different angles, so we'll grab it then. But look at verse 23. He says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for, 
the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, that, that little word for at the beginning of verse 23 is important as it's giving us the ground or answers the why question. This then is the reason the wife is to submit to her husband, and it's because God has given her husband the authority in the marriage. And I'm going to be brief on this point because we really drilled down on this overarching idea with the word submit. The issue here is this word head, which constantly means ruler or authority in the New Testament. Uh, Some have recently tried to argue that, no, 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 it doesn't mean head, it means source. So as to negate any authority here, instead arguing that this is just getting at the historical reality that Adam was created first, God then formed Eve out of Adam, and thus Adam's the source of Eve. But that doesn't work with the use of the word, and it certainly doesn't work with the context here. This word is consistently used throughout the Bible to mean authority. And if you want to dig into that more, I commend an article written by Wayne Grudem where he surveys every single known use of that word and shows that it consistently refers to authority. But not just the word itself, right? The context makes this absolutely clear. Look at the comparison. The husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. And if you look back to 122 to 23, there we read, He, God the Father, put all things under his, Christ the Son, feet, and gave him as head, that's the same word, gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who will fill all and in all. So this here in the context of Ephesians is clearly getting at Christ's authority over the church. I like what Clinton Arnold says in his commentary here. He says, quote, the reason Paul instructs wives to submit to their husbands is due to the fact that the husband-wife relationship in the Christian household is modeled on the relationship of Christ to the church. These role distinctions are therefore not based on something out of the old covenant now abolished in Christ, nor are they based on some kind of concession to the Greco-Roman or Jewish culture. The pattern for role relationships in marriage is rooted deeply in the new covenant." End quote. Jesus is the head of the church, which is His body. By the way, he's setting the table for something we're going to look at next week there. But Jesus is the authority over the church as he is her very Savior. And see, this is getting at Jesus' overturning of the curse, right? This is getting at his setting all things right. We must remember where he started. We were all, he said, dead spiritually. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were all not submitting to Jesus not submitting to God. We were submitting to the world, the devil, and our own flesh. But Christ took those who were dead spiritually. He made us alive, right? He, 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 gave us, he gave us the grace to believe in what He had done, what He had accomplished on the cross. And in so doing, He created a new people for Himself. What we're told is His own workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that we would live for Him, which could be summed up in submitting to Him rightly as we should as our King. And let me just say, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, this is probably the most important thing I'll say to you. We're covering some hard stuff, but all of this flows from this idea that Jesus is our Savior. All of us have rebelled against God. All of us rightly deserve 
God's wrath. But God in His grace sent His Son to live the life we couldn't live, to go to the cross to bear the punishment we deserve to bear. And I would plead with you, look to Christ, believe on Christ today, submit your life to Christ. For believers, we live in light of our new reality. And here we see that in the new creation, Christ, who is the head of the church, thus who is the authority of the church, He has ordained that the husband be the authority in the marriage. And as we go on, we see both the motivation and the model. Look at verses 22 and 24. These are parallel verses. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Verse 24, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. In verse 22, Paul exhorts women to submit to their husbands as to the Lord, and that's important. This is getting at her ultimate motivation, which is living her life for Jesus. Remember, verse 21 kicked this whole section off saying, submitting to one another out of reverence or in the fear of Christ. And while this idea of the fear of the Lord in no way conveys terror or intimidation for believers, there is this this sense of awe, but it's more than what we often think of as awe. You might think of standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon, and it's just amazing and magnificent and big and dangerous, right? Uh, and, And so as we think about Jesus as the King of kings, the Lord over everything, the one before whom one day every single knee will bow even if it's too late for them, will bow as he separates believer from unbeliever. See, it's in light of Jesus' glorious power and his authority that all Christians, every single one of us, are to submit ourselves first to him and then to any authority that he's placed over us. And there's plenty of those if we had time to get into them, but here, specifically, it's wives to their husbands. So that's the motivation, right? She wants to honor Jesus. The model is the church, specifically how the church is to submit to Christ. Verse 24, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So the church is the model for submission. And think about how the church models this. We as the church are called to place ourselves under the authority of Jesus as we trust in His beneficial rule, right? And as we experience the freedom and joy of living for Him. And the wife is called to submit in like manner. What's more, when we think about the church as the example, we know that the church's submission to Christ is complete. It's supposed to be. We're called to submit to Jesus in every area of our lives. So, so it's not a pick and choose, right? Well, I, I, I think I'll submit to Him and letting Him be my Savior. I like that. But I think I'm going to withhold submission in this particular area of my life that I don't think I like quite so much. No. We know the church is called to submit to Jesus' authority over every part of our lives. And Paul's using the church's submission to Christ's authority to make it clear that he expects the same in the home. Thus, he adds 
the two little words, in everything. Now, see, I think this is a point that we immediately want to get into qualifiers and dig into all that that might not entail. And there's a place for qualifiers. We'll, we'll come to that in a minute. But I think it's equally important, especially for the church today, to step back and really ponder in everything, in everything, and remember that Paul's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Again, I like what Arnold says, quote, in everything indicates that this should be the normal disposition of the wife toward her husband. It means that a wife should cultivate an attitude of affirming, supporting, and respecting her husband's leadership in the marriage without holding back certain areas where she wants to assert or maintain control, end quote. Again, we'll get to the men next week, and we'll really lean in there. But today we started with the wives because that's where Paul started. And we want to take what the Word of God says seriously. And we want to understand this is inspired by God. This is, this is His idea. This is what He says is best for the family. And this is what we're going to see He says makes much of Jesus. But before we land on that point, I do want to pause and address one very important qualification. And I'll just let you know, next week I plan to get into some other questions and some other misunderstandings. But here, just this one qualification. In everything must be qualified by the reality that Jesus is our ultimate authority. Remember, this flows from verse 21, submitting to one another, wives to husbands, out of their fear of Christ. And so, as we already said, it is this that motivates submission, and it is this that controls submission. You see, while the husband is the head of the wife, Christ is the head of the husband. So, 1 Corinthians 11. And He's also the head of the church, Ephesians 1. Which means that for Jesus, all of, for all of us, Jesus is our ultimate authority. And the reason this is important is because while this exhortation is not conditional, and that's a misunderstanding I'm going to cover next week, but in short, nowhere does Paul say, wives submit if your husband's loving you well. Nowhere does he say, husbands love only if she's submitting. No, the husband, if you're called, if you're a husband, you're called and equipped by nature being filled with the Spirit to love your wife even if she's Medusa. And while the same is true for wives, if the husband were ever to ask or demand that you do something contrary to your ultimate submission to Jesus, you must not submit at that very point. We have to be clear on the difference between ultimate and delegated authority. So, for example, if your husband were to forbid you to go to church, that's pretty clear in the Scriptures. It's a command that we're supposed to gather together. And so, if that were to be the case, the wife should respond like Peter and John in Acts 4, where the Jewish priest told him, stop speaking about Jesus. They said, wait a minute, are we supposed to obey you or, or God? And of course, they were clear, ultimately, they would obey God. If your husband were to ask you to engage in something illegal, if he were to ask you to engage in sinful behavior with him, you must remember your ultimate authority is Jesus, who you're to honor, yes, by honoring your husband, unless your husband is asking you to go against Christ, your ultimate authority. There's so much more we could say on that point, and again, I plan to get into some misunderstandings. 
And we tie this together next week with the husband's role. But for now, I want to end on this. This is not easy. I think we would all agree. In fact, if we go back to chapter 4, verse 1, and just work our way through, it, it's not easy what we're, what we're called to. I, we're going to say the same thing with the role of the husbands next week. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. Not easy. It's hard, but it's beautiful. This lived out points people to Christ and the church, and we're going to lean in on that heavily next week. But that reality should, should put up for us the importance of what's being taught here. Marriages that are preaching the gospel. And here, I think, we must remind ourselves we need to be filled with the Spirit, right? That's what led into this. The only way, wife, you're going to consistently submit to your husband. The only way husbands are going to consistently love their wives is if we're filled with the Spirit, right? Filled like wind in a sail so that we're carried along by the Spirit. And so we need to be in the Word. We need to be doing what we're doing here. We need to be with brothers and sisters encouraging one another because these are areas that we're all prone to struggle. And we need to remember the gospel is sufficient for all of our failures here. Wives, we are product of the fall. And even at the fall, we were told that your desire would be for your husband, right? There'd be this back and forth to, to rule over him, but then he would come and rule over you in inappropriate ways. And so there's that, that old man going on. And so to the degree that we fail here, which we will, we struggle here, the gospel's sufficient. Bring it to Christ. Confess your sin. Receive forgiveness. You might need to confess to your husband. Husbands, you might need to confess to your wives. Be filled with the Spirit. And let's seek to honor Christ in our homes. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. And Father, we pray that You would, would continue that work your word says you're doing, renewing our minds. Lord, we confess we are so worldly in our thinking so often. And so, Lord, we need times like this. Lord, we need times in prayer together this week. We need time spending time as the men are going to get together. Lord, we, we need to be an encouragement to one another for we want to honor you. We want to make much of Jesus with the lives you've given us. And so we ask for your help. And we pray this in his name. Amen.